0: Our second lesson for today comes from uh, the letter to Ephesians chapter 4 beginning in the first verse. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of God's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to... The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love were to grow up in every way in him who is the head of Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together in every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. There is so much to unpack in these 16 verses. I have a 90-minute sermon, which, which I'll only preach about 20 of. The... Thought came to mind this week about stories and what stories capture our hearts and our ethos, especially in particular different stories that capture different generations and the question that each generation asks, for example, the greatest generation that we as we call it, uh, it seems to me it might be fair to say that stories that captured uh, their attention were uh, epic tales of good versus evil. You think of John Wayne movies, right? Or what about the baby boomer generation? You think of stories about right and wrongs or self-actualization in the midst of all the world coming at them. I think of stories like Forrest Gump and all of the saga the they encountered, or my own generation, generation X uh, a generation considered to be slumbering and wanting to wake up, and so stories like the The Matrix, where we ask is what we 're experiencing in life? is it really real, or in a darker side of that to knock us out of our slumber with stories like Fight Club, but today, in the the world that we live in today, what is the transformative story that seems to capture our ethos. And I couldn't help but think of weak and scrawny Steve Rogers from Captain America's fame. You recall this character. He so wanted to make an impact, but most of his life as a young man, He was instead being impacted (laughs) as he would try to stand up but only to get knocked down by those who were stronger. Eventually, he got the, if you know the story, the super serum and became Captain America, not only fulfilling one of his dreams to make an impact for others but really making an impact for the world around him. And I realized that that story from weakness to strength uh, resonates because so many uh, in today's generation don't want to just go along, they want to make an impact. And isn't it interesting if you uh, tie the thread together of these different generations as we do life together that there are, you can see, I think clearly, some similarities in each of the questions and each of the things that resonate throughout the ethos of each generation. And so the question begs today, what story will finally answer All of those questions. And as Paul preaches to the region there in Ephesus in his letter to cosmopolitan Ephesus. Just as in our days, unlikely stories emerge. And we've heard some of them these last couple of weeks as we've traveled through chapters 1, 2, and 3. Like a Jew preaching to the Gentile, unheard of. Like a new foundation, only one foundation, not many, but only one. And then what's sometimes hard for us to receive and hear, as we heard last week, an immense love that we are God's beloved. You see, this meta narrative, this overarching story, captures our human story like none other. But you might ask, How can I believe it? It sounds too good to be true. Well, we spent time in other weeks together and other sermon series talking about some of the, the scientific or archaeological or literary criticism or history, evidence in history that help point us to the truth of God's word and the absolute truth of what Jesus has truly done. But I think, The human condition, as it encounters the words of God in this letter to Ephesians here, reveals to us, as we'll continue to hear in the last part of this book, reveals to us the truth of God's word because it answers the longing of our hearts. You see, what often divides us is when we answer those questions alone and by themselves and with our own mindset. But what unites us is this meta-narrative, this one true story of the gospel. You see, the absolute truth is that in Ephesians, we're learning that there is an answer to our questions. And in chapter four, the apostle Paul Shares that answer again, but he shifts gears. And as some scholars have put it, and one in particular said, this shift can be expressed in many ways from a shift from telling us of doctrine to now our duty from creed and we'll hear an early creed as you just heard in this text whether it was one that God wrote through the apostle Paul or one that was already being shared in the early church we don't know but either way it was an early creed of the church and from creed now to our conduct in the latter part of this text but I quite like uh, this phrase and a couple other scholars talked about it as well That we move from the indicative of who we are to the imperative of who we're called to be. Indicative to the imperative. It's interesting as you read through, and I hope you'll take time to read through these texts again this week. You'll hear again, like at the beginning of chapter 4, that we're all one in Christ, we're all the same in Christ. But then by verse 11, it says, but we're all different. And yet by the end, as another scholar pointed out, we're all vital, empowered by the same loving God who is present through his spirit. And so I wanna take a few moments this morning to walk through this gear change that the apostle Paul gives us in chapter four. And the first thing to remember is the indicative That is who he has made us and what he has done for us and in us. Who he's called us and made us to be. His work. And when we remember the indicative, uh, the imperative comes soon after. But when we forget the indicative, then we lose the imperative that he's given us. Let me give you an example from the Bible. In the book of Judges in the Old Testament... We hear with some graphic and sometimes gruesome detail which it was a story on film It would definitely be rated R or worse of the ways in which God's people, his people who he beloves, have gone off the rails and gone on their own path. Often the book of Judges will say this phrase over and over again that people did what was right in their own own eyes and evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the truth is that we still do that today. We're divided because we often go off on what is right in our own eyes, ignoring the way of the Lord. And so in the book of Judges, God sends some to some of us who are famous characters, maybe you heard of them or studied them or even experienced them in Sunday school growing up. People like Deborah or Gideon or the uh, much famed and often broken life of Samson. And God used these judges, sometimes in pretty violent ways, to get God's people back on track. But finally, God does something different. He bears the violence on himself for our sin. For the final, truest judge is Jesus. And he comes to the cross with love for us. He takes it all on for you and for me. And he bears what we cannot bear. And he dies the death that we deserve. He is separated from God so that we won't have to be. This is the indicative. This is what Jesus has done. And we're reminded of that with this word, one. Used seven times, seven times right here in this creed in Ephesians 4. One Lord, Jesus is Lord. That means I'm not anything else I put as Lord over my life, as wise or as good as it may be, will get me off the rails. Even good things like family and friends cannot be our Lord. Only Jesus One spirit by which Christ is confessed, the Holy Spirit. One faith that he gives us. One hope that comes from this sacrificial gift. One baptism. And you say, whoa, 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 aren't there all kinds of views on baptism in the Christian church? Well... Certainly there are all kinds of different ways and understandings of how the scripture teaches us how to baptize, but as Weston will be baptized today, the church has baptized through the ages. The Orthodox Church always agrees on this truth. We're baptized in the one Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That remains the same. And when we live contrary to this one way, this one gift, this indicative gift, this thing that God has done, then we live like the judges, those who lived in the time of the judges. We walk with what's right in our own eyes. We create our own identities, our own way of doing things, and we miss out on the gift of love poured out from us by the one foundation for us in Christ Jesus. As we walk our way through this chapter, we discover that from this one foundation, this one place, there may be many differences. there are different gifts. I like how Chuck Colson, in his book on the body about the body of Christ, says there's unity with diversity. The unity comes in those core Teachings of who we are in Christ, or as C.S. Lewis called them, mere Christianity. When we get it wrong, we need to go back to that indicative. Go back to what God's word said. That's what the Reformation was about 500 years ago, to bring us back to the one true faith. Not to separate or divide, but to unify under Christ. An athlete, any good athlete will tell you, you always go back to the fundamentals. And having been called back to these fundamentals with a diversity of gifts, he urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that he has given. And so the imperative follows. Literally, I urge you, verse 1 says, that imperative is right there. And he urges us in a way that the folks in cosmopolitan Ephesus didn't expect in ways that in our lives we don't expect, not pursuing power, but instead humbleness. To express it with gentleness and ultimately with love. And so... It is revealed to us this one truth through apostles who are messengers of the truth and prophets who bring the word and pastors who shepherd the flock and teachers who teach it to us and evangelists who cry out this good news but it's not that those are the only job descriptions out there. What did the word say? It's to equip the church for ministry so that you and I, when we are in our daily life together and the baptismal calling that we each get in our baptism can share the word that God has given us to share, can shepherd those he has given us to shepherd, can teach what he has given us to teach, to evangelize those who have come across our path he has given us to share the good news of the gospel with. It is not a professional ministry. It is the ministry of all the baptized every single day. You might say, to quote another movie, we are all, each one of us, on a mission from God every day. This is what unites us. And you might want to hit the pause button here and say, wait a minute, I thought you were talking all about grace these last few weeks. I thought it was about what God has done, and now you're saying it's about what I do? Now remember, it's the indicative first, we never miss that, that takes us to the imperative, to our calling. And it is about grace, I like how Brian Schaffel put it. He said, grace is certainly freedom from guilt. We don't get folks to faith by our power. It's the work of the Spirit. Grace is freedom from guilt, he says, but it is the fuel for Christian life. Did you catch that? Grace is the fuel for Christian life. As we wrap up this encounter with Ephesians 4, and I hope you'll continue spending time in this good word throughout the week, let's go back to that first verse one more time. To live a life worthy of the calling. I like how one scholar describes it from the Greek. The, the Greek word there, worthy, is axios. It's the root idea, and he'll write, of weight. This is the word where we derive in English the word axiom, which means to be equal weight. And mathematicians among us will know uh, that what goes on one side of the equal side uh, in an equation must be on the other. And so what God has poured into us by his grace, the indicative, by his work and his work alone He then calls us in our baptism, he calls us that on the other side of that equation, the imperative to walk a life worthy of that grace and be fueled by that grace. And we shift gears now for the rest of our time in Ephesians for the next couple of uh, sermons there and examining what he calls us to do. We shift gears, but we never walk away from the truth of the one Lord, one faith one baptism, one God and Father of us all to live the vital life He has called us to, the one He's called us to be worthy of, that He's made us worthy of by His grace. We now respond with love and following Him. Indeed, your life, when you leave these doors, when you go home, when you go to work, when you go to school, wherever you may be, you are on a mission from God to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Amen.